0: My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.
1: I always want to share just a little bit of my testimony as to why I'm standing here today before we get into the Shroud. Um, So I I grew up in Connecticut, and there just wasn't really a whole lot of Jesus up in in Connecticut. It's just the truth. The whole kind of northeast quadrant up there just doesn't really have a whole lot of Jesus going on. And so I went to public school where I was told Darwin had solved everything, and there really just was no need for God. And so... I grew up, I didn't know I was an atheist growing up, I just never even thought about it, you know what I mean, like it just wasn't something, the the people, the culture wasn't around, the language wasn't around, all that stuff wasn't around, there was like one church in my town, and and that was it, and so, um, because of that, I grew up without God without hope without that that hope for a future you know and to make matters worse there's some little kids in here so my uncle took away my childhood when I was very young I'll just leave it at that and, and I'm sure you know what I'm talking about and um, I did my first drug when I was six years old uh, they thought it would be funny to give a, a six-year-old cocaine and the Coke that I was drinking and so I did that by the time I was seven years old I was smoking about a pack a day that was back when cigarettes were like 79 cents a pack now now they're like fourteen dollars a pack, and I'm like, praise God, Jesus, you delivered me from cigarettes. I have to take a second job just to keep that habit up, um, and so that that was that was how life started out. I, I my dad was was there physically, but not so. You know, I had I just amount the problems and just keep them going and, and that's that's where I was at. By the time I was 16, I dropped out of school and was taking trips to New York City and picking up LSD and coming back and selling it. I was traveling with the Grateful Dead. I mean, I was just I was living in underground societies where people that you would never imagine um, are, are gathering together for weekend festivals and doing as many drugs as you can think. Of. That was the, when, when you don't have God, it's carpe diem lifestyle. It's live for today, you know. That's, that's if, if all we do is we wake up, we breathe and then we die and we're eaten by worms then you know my view was make the most of it you know go all out do everything you can and so I wanted to be a musician sex drugs and rock and roll that was my lifestyle and um, so it was never was never working out I was in a band and we kept getting looked at and nothing nothing would ever bite so it was just nothing was ever coming if I had a business but I never could and so anyways long story short um, the, I was about I guess I was 26 when, um, when my mom came down with cancer Signet ring cell adenocarcinoma and um, she was my best friend like she was my mom was really the only anchor I had in life because I just i didn't I just didn't I just had, didn't have a lot life didn't start off well for me um, so when she came down with cancer I was devastated spent the year that she was able to make it um, I spent down in Florida most of the time until she passed away and um, When I came home, I I was I mean, I had battled depression for most of my life because everything that had been done to me and the things the choices that I made that were that were that were consequential on, on my life. And so When she died, I just, I hit rock bottom, or at least I thought I did. And um, I got to work, and a a guy that I worked with offered me a line of Coke. And I had managed to stay away from Coke, heroin, and meth um, for, for besides that little stint that I had when I was a little kid, it was mostly hippie drugs that I was into, mushrooms and LSD and marijuana and that sort of thing. Um, Oh, it's the heat? AC. Oh, praise God for AC! Everybody, give a clap for AC. <laughs> Amen. Woo! I love you, brother. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm I'm from Connecticut. I never have adjusted to the South, and I live in Georgia now. And I'm like, it's just hot all the time. I'm like, it's ridiculous. What was I saying? Something about oh, uh, all that stuff. So, anyways, when she died, he offered me a, a line of coke, and I did it, and nothing happened because I, I I was looking for an out because when you don't have God. There's no out. There's, there's nothing at the end of the the line. You know what I'm saying? Like there's Atheism is a very... Let me back up. By this time, I was a militant atheist because I didn't realize I was an atheist in Connecticut until I moved down to Georgia, the Bible Belt. And all of a sudden, people were pulling out of church, cutting me off and giving me the number one sign. And I was like... I don't want what you've got. And so I started turning into a militant atheist. I was, I was, if you had told me you were a Christian, I was coming after you and I was going to ridicule you. I thought you had to check your brain at the door. And you couldn't be rational. You couldn't be logical. And, of course, I was a very rational, logical person. You know, I had all the answers. Until somebody asked me one time, what do I believe? And after an hour and a half of ranting, I confused myself so bad. And that poor little soul was like, okay. He didn't even have like a response. And so... The third time, John, the second time he offered to me nothing, the third time he offered to me, I was thinking, if this doesn't do it this time, it's just not for me, whatever the case. And I, I remember that dryer um, in, the, in the basement of this person's home, and, and I snorted that line. I was like, oh my gosh, what was that? And um, he started laughing, and he says, you'll, you'll still be up at 7 a.m. Well, this was like 7.30 a.m., and he meant you'll still be up at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, and it was ice, it was crystal meth. And... Um, And I'll be honest with you, I felt like Superman that day. And everything that was bothering me, I was like, wow, this is great. And so um, that went on for about four years until I was about 110 pounds. Um, I had moved away from my wife and my son for nine months. I abandoned them. I was living in a... A dead man's house at the estate hadn't closed in the corner of a room on some couch cushions that I had found. And if I had had a gun, I would have turned it on myself. But I was afraid if I tried to overdose that I would just look stupid. If I jumped in front of a truck, it wouldn't work and I'd be a paraplegic and I would look stupid. I was afraid to fail at failing because failure was, was everything that I was. That was my whole life. And so one day I went home and periodically I'd go home like every once in a blue moon to, to visit. And um, my wife was reading this stupid book. It's called Knowing Jesus Personally. And it had the Billy Graham Library series. And to me, Billy Graham at the time was just a, another televangelist that just wants your money and tells you a bunch of lies, you know. And so every time I'd see that book, I would throw it away or I would hide it and she'd get that book out. So I got there that night and she was gracious enough to let me in. and um, And I saw that book and I just started to mock God. I said, you know, you're a, I called him every name under the sun. We had it out. And I was crying so hard that, I mean, every orifice of my face was just leaking. and I, I, was, I was done. That, that, was, that was it. I was, I was done. End of story. And my altar call, strange enough, was this. Because my, my issue with God was, why would you create me and then leave me to this? Like, what kind of a sadistic God would you be to, to create me and then leave me in this kind of a mess? And so I finally, after having it out with him, and I didn't think there was anybody on the other end of this phone call, but I finally said, if you're God, do something about it. And my wife put me to bed, and guess what? (laughs) <laughs> he did something. I woke up the next day, the meth addiction was completely erased, as though it never existed. I don't remember what drip tastes like, what it feels like to be high. My cursing New England mouth was was ceased to exist. He took my guitar from me. I'd pick up a guitar after. I played lead guitar in an instrumental jazz-style band. I know what I'm doing on a guitar, and I'd pick up a guitar, and there was nothing. My wandering eyes, because of my immorality, was completely erased. Everything that made me who I was up until that night was completely erased and and I was just sitting there like a clean slate going what happened because you don't just get off a meth I've lost several friends to it I've got some other friends that have gone absolutely crazy they think they're being chased all the time that's all they do they live in a world where they think they're being chased it's it's not something that you just walk away from it's the devil's drug it really is and so I knew that something had happened but I wasn't really allowing that because I, don't, I didn't allow for supernatural miraculous. That wasn't a part of the atheistic worldview that I had. But I knew now that something had happened. And so I started studying Buddhism, trying to figure out if Buddha did it. And he was Siddhartha Gautama. He was the prince, heir to the throne of the king. Found all this stuff about him. And I do believe he existed about 600 BC. I don't, I don't contest that. But it wasn't until around... 30 B.C., almost 600 years after he was dead, that the first words that he ever said were written down, and I had a massive problem with that. I was like, how do you know what anybody said 600 years later? And, and what I found out was that he said there is no God, and yet they're feeding him and putting incense and coins on him in every restaurant, but he said there is no God. Buddhism at its core is an atheistic religion, so that couldn't have been the one that did it to me, so I remembered 19, uh, 2011, September 1st, or 2001, September 1st, uh, I got the dates, September 11th, 2001, like it was yesterday, I'll never forget that day, where I was, what the temperature was, I, and so I remembered those Muslims blowing themselves up into that building. And I thought, well, Christians aren't doing that. You know, they've got so much zeal that they're blowing themselves up in a building that it's got to be their God that did it. So I started studying Islam and I became an expert. On, I'm an expert on Islam now. And, and I found out that Muhammad's first visions he thought was a demonic uh, oppression and his, his wife, cousin Khadijah, had to convince him that no, it was the angel Gabriel that was doing this. And I got to the part of the Quran where his own Qurashi, this is in their holy word, their Qurashi tribe said that this is a man possessed by demons taught by others and I was like that's not very good if the foundation of your religion is the man who wants to throw himself off a cliff and commit suicide because he thinks he's being oppressed by demons you might want to get a new religion and so that wasn't it well about this time my mother-in-law and I've got a lot of good mother-in-law jokes and they're all funny um, and they're all true for my life Um, my mother-in-law did the best thing for me though she gave me a case for Christ in the midst of all this because I wasn't looking for Christianity I had heard everything about Christianity. That wasn't what I was looking for. And so she gave me a case for Christ. And when I came to the historical evidences for Jesus that are from first century enemy testimony, not first century Christians writing about him, first century Jews and Greeks that were writing about this man named Jesus that lived in Nazareth, that was in Jerusalem at that time, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. If this man of history that I never knew—I thought he was just a myth—that we were supposed to, you know, uh, have him as a good example or something—if this man of history is the man of the Bible, I probably ought to open that Bible, and that's when I just everything turned. I was like, every question I've thrown at him—I have thrown Jesus every question known to man—and and and I'm going to throw more at him as time goes on. I believe, and he's just stood there going, "Bring it," because he's the truth. He's not afraid of a question. You can ask him anything you want. Any doubt you have, bring it to him. He's not afraid of it. Every other religion that I've brought questions to, my friend is about the same time, my best friend, oldest friend, was turning into a Buddhist, and we would go head to head as I was trying to argue for Christianity, and he would argue for Buddhism, and his answer is, I seek to know everything so that I know nothing. I said, what? That's the most illogical thing I've ever heard. He goes, no, I want to know everything so that I can know nothing. And I was like, you say it a second time, it still becomes more illogical than it was the first time. And so I was asking a question. He's like, I don't know. And he was okay with that. Well, I've got news for you. I wasn't okay with saying I don't know. So I went to Jesus and he's like, I'll tell you why. And everywhere I turned. And so I'm not a Christian because it feels good or I needed to put a check in the box to fill a pew or that's that's not why I'm a Christian I'm a Christian because I followed all the evidence and all of the evidence solidly points towards the Christian faith hands down there's nothing that comes even a close second to coming into the place where Christianity is historically true scientifically true I mean it's just it's just true you can't get around it so that's that's why I'm standing here today is because for 30 years I lived a lie and now I'm trying to go out and undo that lie for as many people as I can and pay it forward. Amen? Y'all want to talk about the shroud? How many of y'all have heard of the shroud at all? Oh, wow! You guys laugh and you've heard of the Shroud. This is like my favorite audience of all time. This is great. Good job, man. Oh, is is it only you heard of it because he was sailing when it was coming? (laughs) I got you now. No. (laughs) Most people, when I ask that, they're like, "Yeah, I've heard of it before, but I don't really know anything about it. Well, the Shroud is about this. What you're looking at here is, let me tell you a little bit about this presentation. This I'm fortunate enough to have in 1978 a team of scientists went and spent five nights and five days round-the-clock in shifts doing studies on the shroud trying to disprove it there was a couple of christians most of them were jews most of them were atheists there was a few mormons mixed in there Um, but they were going to disprove the shroud they wanted to make it go away and so they spent five days the vatican allowed them five days five nights to study the shroud more than it's ever been studied before the shroud is the most scrutinized piece of ancient artifacts that has ever i mean hands down there's been countless thousands upon thousands of hours That's gone into trying to figure out exactly what is it and how do we make it either go away or stand up. And everything that I'm gonna present this morning has been peer-reviewed. And why that's important is because there are some evidences out there that are cool, like there's a Pontius Pilate coin over the left eye. That's cool, it fits the Jewish bearer that I get that, but it's not peer-reviewed. And Barry Schwartz, you're gonna hear me talk about Barry a lot. Barry convicted me on this. He said, look, there is so much good peer-reviewed, meaning the evidence has been tested. It was sent out, the report was sent out into the scientific community at large, the whole place. They all got a chance to poke at it and make it go away, it stood up, and so the peer-reviewed science is strong enough to convict it of being the shroud, that that you don't need anything that's not peer-reviewed. So everything I'm sharing with you has stood the test of the peer-reviewed scientific community. This is a piece that they made in 1978 when they went there. Um, They made five of these digital recreations, and today I'm a little bit more proud than ever because a a Shroud of Turin research um, on Facebook put an article about a lady who's traveling around and she's got a shroud that she travels with, a a replica and I'm looking at it and I'm like, that's not it though. See, what you're looking at is the closest thing you're ever going to see to seeing the real thing because in most of the recreations and we'll get into, I don't want to steal the thunder of some of it, but in most of the recreations they do a little bit of tinting to it to make certain things pop out more whereas this right here is exactly what you're looking at. There's only one of five in the world. I was fortunate enough to pick it up. This is the piece that they actually used to continue their scientific research after they had flown back from the Vatican. So it's about a 14 and a half foot, uh, three foot, seven uh, piece of, of linen cloth. We know it's a first century herringbone weave pattern, which, which matches that. And I got to play just a, a little bit. This is, this is um, exactly what the shroud is. He was put into the shroud like this, and then the shroud was taken over top. So it's a solid cloth, but he was laid down on his back, and then the cloth would have been folded over to like that. But I want to show you this video just to kind of give you some of the heads up on what you're looking at, because most people look at it and go, is that one of those science experiments? Like, what do you see? Is that an abstract? So we're going we're gonna to play a video and kind of unpack that just a little bit.
0: 1532, Chambéry Cathedral, France. For its safekeeping, the Savoy family puts the shroud in a casket and hides it in a crypt behind a grill with four locks, each with a separate key. But on December 15th, a fire blazes through the cathedral. Clergymen frantically search for the four keys, but to no avail. Finally, a blacksmith is summoned and manages to free the shroud, but not before the metal casket has started to melt and drip on the folded cloth inside, scarring it forever with burn holes and scorch lines down both sides of the image.
1: So so what a lot of what you're looking at is these are patches right here that the nuns cut out the worst part of the burn and sewed in patches to keep the fra- the, uh, the the cloth from tearing anymore. And the reason why it's has some sort of symmetry to it like that is, is if you look at like a paper angel when you fold it up and you cut it and you unfold it, it has symmetry. And so when the cloth was folded up, and I'll show you in a minute how that was how it still folded to this day, when the when the, the, the metal started to drip through, it hit the cloth and dripped all the way through each layer. And so when you unfold the cloth you end up with symmetry right here. So what we have is we have these patch marks here. We've got water marks. There's a there's a really bad water mark right here. There's another bad water mark right there. Water all over it. There's there's blood. You've got scorch lines going down. Yes I said blood and we'll get to that in a, in a little while. But there's scorch lines going down because of the way that it was faded or, or the way that it was burned. But what most people don't see when they first look at the shroud is all this stuff going on. If you look you'll see a face right here. There's two eyes, a nose, a mouth, and his beard is down here and that's why we're justified brother to have that big long beard because he had a big long beard um, yes there's his uh, arms coming down right here you can see the nail wound through the w- wrist right there his knees are about here you can see the foot wound here this is the backside because he would have been laying down on that cloth the back of his head is right here shoulders and comes down to the small of the back comes down the knee pits are right about here and his ankles are right about here I always get the question how tall was he they're figuring somewhere around five seven to five eight so he's got you beat by just a little bit Joe <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) just, just, which for first century Judaism, he would have been taller than most first century Jews, which you you would have been a good first century Jew, Joe. Um, but he, he was a little bit taller, but that actually makes sense to me because when he was walking through the crowds, it said that in the midst of the crowds, they could look and see Jesus. So if he was just a little taller than everybody else, then that would actually magnify his presence when he was walking through. So that makes sense to me. So what I always get is this, it's a medieval forgery that they did carbon dating and it's been, it's been proven false. And, and that, that's it, let's go home. Well, what I want to do is I want to tackle that. But before we get into that, let's just, say, let's just say it is a medieval production, that this was made in the medieval times. I want to set the temperature of scientific technology for that time period. And so that way, when I show you these scientifically peer-reviewed evidences, we can compare the technology necessary for it against where technology truly was back in that time. Back in 1220, we had the Treadwheel Crane Basically, a human hamster wheel. You get in it, you walk, and it lifts up a crane, and then you walk back this way, and it lowers it back down. That was high technology back then. What about this? Spectacles in 1280. Up until that point, if you were blind, there's nothing you can do about it. 1280, somebody finally came out with uh, spectacles. And I, I think that's what you should call them now is, where are my spectacles? And that just sounds so much better. I just, I don't know. I like the spectacles. I, I have to wear spectacles now because my eyes don't work like they used to. I got fat and, and I got my hair though. So we got that. Uh, 1280, and, then, and then finally, I want to give you this. 1498, the bristle toothbrush is invented. How did they brush their teeth before that? Anybody? I have no idea either. Yeah, what do you think? You actually answer that like you know. Are you serious? You're the first person who's ever tried to answer that, and you sent... I'm believing you. That was, I mean, that was awesome, man. Can I give you a hug? Come on. I'm so impressed right now, man. Wow. Oh, that was fantastic. I'll, I've probably given this presentation 150 times And you're the first person who's ever Really? I feel like my brain just grew A little bit in that moment, that was awesome So <laughs> Before or after herbs I think, brother, I think they should have kept the herbs After I show you what they used in 1498 They would take a bone and they would take The hairs off the back of a, of a hog And attach it to it and that was the first Bristle toothbrush Given the choice, I'd stick with the herbs <laughs> Because I'm not brushing my teeth with that. But that's the technology. We've got a hamster wheel, spectacles, and a hog hair toothbrush. So let's just keep that in mind as we go forward with our presentation today. That if it's a medieval forgery, we've got to compete with that. Okay? So here's the thing. 1988. They did a carbon dating testing and they said that, uh, you know, it's a fake. And, and this, is, this is studies on the radiocarbon uh, sample from the Shroud of Turin. This is written by Ray Rogers who was one of the scientists that was, uh, that was on that team. He works out of Los Alamos. And here's what he wrote, excerpts from the abstract. He said in 1988, 1260, and 1390 with 95% confidence prompted questions about the validity of the sample. Preliminary estimates indicate a much older age for the cloth. I, I, I wish that statement was peer-reviewed somewhere because I put it in there because there's other tests that have been done that puts it right back where it should be. But I'm going to say this. I'm going to take the baby and I'm going to take the bathwater and I'm throwing the whole thing out on radiocarbon dating. I can't stand radiocarbon dating. It's the most fallacious science that, that they know is, is, is fallacious and yet they still try and use it. But anyways, let's go on. So here's what I said. Observations prove that the radiocarbon sample was not a part of the original cloth of the shroud or turn. The radiocarbon date was thus not valid for determining the true age of the shroud. And so not only did they have patches sewn into it, they actually sewed along the entire back of the entire cloth another a cloth to get more rigidity so that when the priest would hold it out to, for display it had a little bit more strength instead of just weakening the cloth but they also took down in this corner an eight centimeter piece and they found mixed fibers I'm going to show you a video that explains what that is it's really cool
0: got holes in your clothes you need without a trace we're reweavers we have a specialized skill we repair holes and tears in damaged garments reweaving is so detailed This video had to be shown in Fast Forward. At this speed, you can see the expert weaving of thread strands into your garment's damaged area creating virtually almost invisible repairs.
1: I'm speeding it up from here while I keep talking and keep watching. It's the most amazing thing. The French invisible weave still doing done to this day has been done for centuries that we know of and um, and they come from this side of the hole back this way and that side of the hole. They don't just come in and stick. Back when I was a kid you got a hole in your knee and your mom would grab that plaid patch and put it on there. It was like oh mom I just, you know, but but back then they would, they would be able to do this to this day and so what they found was in the fibers that they tested they had mixed fibers. Some of the fibers indeed did date till 1260 to 1390 because that's when they had done that patch back over in France, when it was in Leary, France, when it was with the Savoy family. And so... What they did was, was they, they, they ruled that if, if I was standing here and I'm on a college platform and there's a skeptic over here and we're debating the shroud, the authenticity of the shroud, the skeptic isn't going to use this argument because the skeptic knows that this argument's been turned over. But I want to show you one last video that kind of, for me, puts the nail in the coffin for it.
0: The original carbon-14 test was performed in three parts by three separate laboratories that each tested on an eight-centimeter piece cut from the shroud. The discrepancy came when all three laboratories reported different results. Scientists don't consider carbon-14 dating a perfect science, And when used, it's usually tested against other methods. But it was a small detail that gave way to a discrepancy that evidently all three labs knew about. These same laboratories have had faulty results in the past. They said the tablecloth of one of the scientist's mother-in-laws was 300 years old, or that the bones of a mummy from Ibis dated from 1,500 years before Christ, and the cloth on her body from 200 years after
1: Christ. A 1,700-year gap between the bones and the cloth that covered over the bones. I'm pretty sure that's a discrepancy that's worth throwing out. As I said, for me, and I I do a lot of science presentations as well, for me, carbon dating's out. I've I've got other dating methods that I love and I stick to those, but carbon dating's out. So, anyways, the history of the shroud, the question becomes before it was in um, Savoy, France, or or Leary, France, with the Savoy family, and it gets its name, the Shroud of Turin, because it's stored at the Turin Cathedral in Italy. So that's where it gets its name, the Shroud of Turin now. But before it was put into the Shroud, into the uh, Turin Cathedral in Italy, getting its name in the Shroud of Turin. Where was it? And I'm going to make an argument for the Mandillion of Edessa is what most scholars will say. Can, you can trace it all the way through history. And because this could be a two-week symposium, that, that was actually on display in Atlanta and the Omni for about a month where people from all over the world came in and taught and learned for a month they talked about the Shroud. That's how much information can be. We're going to do this in 45 minutes. So you're getting kind of the condensed version here because I don't think any of you want to sit here for a month and listen to me talk. Um, Y'all could have been like, I would. Just one of you could have been like, yeah. <laughs> Never had such an agreement with that either, Joe. My goodness. So, <laughs> <laughs> the way that it's stored to this day is it's a three-fold scenario where you got the whole entire shroud here. You fold it once, you end up with the front image, you fold it twice, you end up with the torso, you fold it a third time, you get just the head image, and then just like a t-shirt, you fold it back on itself, so all you're displaying is a square of the of the face. And that's exact that's why those scorch marks run all the way down, because it was folded like that when it was stored, and that's why they line up because of the way that it was folded and went through. So we're gonna look for evidence for the shroud of turn as the Mandelian of Edessa, I've probably got about 20 to 30 of these, but I'm only going to share about four or five this morning. Why do I keep saying this morning? I'm just locked into this morning. Can we just say this morning and y'all are like, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, (laughs) That was good. Thank you. Uh, The (laughs) Mandelian, 544 AD. This is the image of Edessa that's over the city gate now Edessa is about to be attacked ransacked and burned down and not only did they pause and say hold on let's go get this from over the city gate because it's that important they found getting it off the city gate so important that they made artwork of the moment of them getting it off the gate that makes that slightly important and if you look you'll see this image of a face fast forward this is the 10th century this is Abgaris of Edessa and he's displaying that image that's in that picture and you see he's holding a cloth that has a face on it and so those both those days 10 centuries 200 years prior to the earliest date that's a, a whole lot of time before that we start to see it show up this is a gold coin struck um, between 693 and 695 AD on the left is the coin on the right is the shroud of turn and when I superimpose the shroud over the coin it's a perfect match now, my argument isn't that because it's a perfect match, that makes that the face of Jesus. That's not what I'm trying to say at this moment. What I'm trying to say is that the artist who was making these depictions in art and coin thought that by using the Shroud of Turin as a point of reference, that they were getting close to matching what Jesus would have looked like since we didn't have cameras back in Jesus' time and nobody ever made any paintings of them or anything like that. The artist is thinking that this is over, this, and again, this is 693 to 695, is way before the medieval times, but this is over in uh, 550 A.D., is Christ the Pantocrator and Mount, Saint Catherine and Mount Sinai, and that's, that's, the, uh, that's the artwork over there. On the left, I'm going to put uh, both the images together, and there's over 200 points of congruence on those images. Now, in a court of law, if you're caught on film, but it's not quite clear enough, the, 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 the film isn't quite clear enough, they do what's called points of congruence, like the tip of your eye from the tip of your eye to the middle of your nose to the edge of your eye, or length of the forehead to the chin, or those are called different points of congruence. 20 points of congruence Matching you to that film, you're guilty of said crime. This is guilty of of, of being that by ten times the amount of of that. Now again, I'm not saying that because that has the points of congruence and the coin does, and different art. Like I said, I've probably got twenty or thirty of these that that go all throughout history. Um, I'm not saying that that makes that the face of Jesus. I'm just saying that the artist thought if they look at the Mandylion of Edessa, that's they're getting close. So that's where it kind of. So the image on the shroud, what is it? that's the biggest question because like I said we know what everything else is on there but the actual image what is it I have no idea I I, I, I couldn't tell you um, I can tell you everything it's not but I can't tell you what it is and so at this point you're going okay why is this guy up here talking if he has no clue what he's talking about I'll let I'll let the, Barry's the first one that's gonna pop up here and I'll let them tell you But at that point in time I knew that whatever this
0: was it wasn't a painting nor is it a drawing, or a photograph, or a scorch mark. So what made the image? After 30 years of intensive analysis,
1: the scientists who examine the shroud still have no idea. So if you don't take my word for it, they've been studying it with hands on for 30 years, and they still have no clue. Here's why. There's no paints, there's no powders, there's no oils, there's no resins, there's no dyes. There's nothing that an artist could have used as any sort of medium to create the image that's on the shroud. And, and the image is actually superficial. I'm going to unpack that for a minute, but I want to say this. There's pollen on the shroud that's been traced to there's, there's three pollens and the only place in the world where all three pollens are all growing at the same places within Jerusalem. So we know what the pollens are. We know that there's lime dust on the bottom of the feet that come from, from caves that are only in Jerusalem. So we, there's, there's things on the cloth that we can extract off of there to find out information about the cloth but the image, there's nothing on the image to extract there's no oils, paints, pigments, powders, dyes, resins or anything else and here's why it's a superficial image, it doesn't actually exist I know, okay Scott does this when he's like thinking, he goes like this, everybody do this All right. we got almost zero crowd participation in that one, Scott Scott, will you do it? ah, good When you hang around somebody long enough, you start doing what they do. And I started realizing, I was like, Joe, I don't, I was like, why am I doing this? Anyways, um, this is, this is, (laughs) Gary Habermas and I were trying to figure out this word microscopy one time, and it was like two five-year-olds laughing at each other. Amillennialism. Um, That's an inside joke between me and Joe and Scott. The image, all right, are you ready? The image is on the first two microfibers of a single thread. Now, I need you to wrap your head around this because I'm not saying it's on the first two threads. That, in and of itself, would be absolutely amazing if it was only on the first two threads, right? But have you ever tried to thread a needle and you take the thread and you, you gotta look at it first. You gotta you know, look at it and then you try and line it up and you're like, and you think you got it so you grab around quick and then you pull and half of it stays behind. And you're like, no! And then you gotta start over again. It's because every thread is composed of almost 70 to 120 microfibers. Picture like the thickness less than a, a spider web. That's what a microfiber is and that's all spun together to make a single thread and then a single thread is woven together to make your, your clothing or, or, or a cloth. The image is on the first two microfibers of one single thread. This, this is a close-up of it. There, there's some staining. When you, this is under a super-powered microscope trying to examine what the image is on the, on, the, on the shroud. And again, there's nothing to extract because there's nothing there. There's just a light staining. So if we were going to say that this was a medieval forgery, I'm going to have to tell... Any, any artists in here... What's up, man? That's, you're my friend. What? Move up to the front row, man. Come on. You and I are going to interact a lot with this one. Mr. Herb man right there. So, so you artist. So, what if I told you this, uh, Mr. Mr. Uh, medieval Times man? I need you to create me this this painting on here, but I but you can't use any paints, pigments, oils, powders, dyes, resins, or any other medium that an artist would know of. And I'm pretty much going to reduce your, your art brush down to one horsehair because in order to, to get it on the first two microfibers you're going to have to have like one horse hair to do it at best and, 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 if, you, and if you use any mediums it's going to penetrate immediately even powder wood. so you've got to put a staining on there somehow of some unknown substance but the problem that gets even worse is when you get closer to it to, to do that the image disappears you have to come at least a foot to three feet away before you can even make the image out at all to the point where how in the world are you going to do it, do you think you could do it? No. <laughs> <How about> herbs? <laughs> well, herbs? There are herbs on there, yeah, we know that. (laughs) You are the smartest person I have ever met in this century. So, so that, that's, the, that's kind of the first anomaly is the image is, is superficial. It doesn't, it doesn't really exist. What your eyes are seeing is almost a trickery. So keep that in mind as we're moving forward. The next one is this. The image is a photo negative. This is the hardest part of the presentation. If we can get through this, we're going to land the plane successfully. Um, and, and I'm glad to see that there's not too many kids in here because kids don't understand this at all. Because they take a picture and boom, it's up on Instagram in like a half a second. They're like, what's a black room? what's a dark room what's, what's photo negative they don't get it so the image that you're seeing here is it's, it's positively what you're seeing okay so when we're looking at it no tricks no gimmicks that's positively what you're seeing Segundo so Pia took a picture of this in 1898 he went into the dark room which is the way that we used to have to develop film and he took it and he put it under the solution and he starts going back and forth and this is what pops up that's the name come here man what's your name Chris Chris come here I was, at, I was at a Christian school in Alabama, and, and, and I'm sitting there um, going to put it up, and this, and this dude's like doing this. I'm like, what are you doing? I'm going to show you what he was doing. He taught me how to do this. So look, come here. You got to come up here. So look, not, not all that impressive, right? You got, where are you? Come here. Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, not all that impressive, right? Mm-hmm. But watch, I'm gonna, he taught me how to do this. Like you reverse the color. See how weird I look now? Oh. You reverse the colors. Watch, you hit it three times. Boom, boom, boom. And now it's back to normal, right? Yeah. You go boom, boom, boom. That yeah. a Samsung? That's an iPhone, man. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how to do it on a Samsung. But watch. If I reverse the lights and the darks, watch. Boom, boom, boom. Bam. You can see the face. See it? What? <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, dude. Wait, do they get on, wait. What? 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 The, the, what? What? I, I don't know. I, I I didn't know you could do. I knew about this, but I didn't know you could do it in real time. Yeah, I'll show you when you when we're done. All right, Chris, come on. You're doing a great job, by the way. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so when he showed me that, I was like, "You got to be kidding me! You can do it in real time." Here's 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 a here's a close up of the whole thing. Whoa, whoa, right here. Look at that. Okay, so here's where it gets difficult. In order for that in its negative format to turn into a positive picture the original positive picture has to be in a negative format you're getting me, (laughs) you might be the only one (laughs) I'm gonna say that again this is positively what you're looking at when you take a positive image and you flip it into a negative it turns into a positive which means this is in a negative format and that look on your face is what I usually get. And so here's the complicated part of this. We're back in the medieval times. Photography doesn't exist. You can't use any paints, pigments, oils, powders, resins, dyes, or any other thing on a one-horse airbrush. You can't get too close to it, and you can't penetrate more than the first two microfibers. But I need you to do it in a negative format so that when photography's invented in 1898, we can really trip them out. You're gonna be like, what's a negative format? because see before photography conceptualizing a negative wasn't really possible how you'd be like what do you mean neg what do you mean transferring light to dark and reverse Like, it wouldn't. So, now you're going to have to convince me in the medieval time that they understood it well enough to, to really, you know, make us go, ooh. I, if this was a forgery, <clears throat> I hope he got saved, and on the other side of heaven, I get to meet him and be like, dude, that was incredible, because, I mean, seriously. And, and look, if they can make this go away, if they can replicate it, I'll give it to you, Joe. You can put it up in the man cave or something. I mean, I don't know if we can do something with it. Or VBS, flip it over, it's white, it would make an awesome VBS poster. I mean, if, if we make it go away, I'm, I'm done. I'm, I, I don't present it because I need to present it. Like Like you said, my faith doesn't rest or die on this. I have a whole entire presentation on the historicity of the resurrection. The history of the resurrection proves itself. I don't really need this to do anything. It's just cool. It's just an interesting artifact. Amen? So that's the first anomaly. The second anomaly is this. This is where it starts to get interesting. So Some of the scientists that were on this team were NASA scientists that were going out there to to do this evaluation, again, to make it go away. For whatever reason, they decided one day that they're gonna take a picture of the shroud and put it into the VP8 analyzer. The VP8 analyzer back in the, in, the, in, the, in the 70s was meant for like sending a special camera up on a satellite that would take a special photograph of Mars or the moon or something like that, shoot the image back, and they would put the image into the VP8 analyzer, and the VP8 analyzer would shoot out a <clears throat> topographical map of the mountains or the valleys of Mars. That was before we could put a, a rover out there and. Did anybody get sad when the Rover died? I did, man. did you like Wally? I was thinking of e and I was like, oh I was like you must be like a Star Trek like fan. Did you see the new Star Wars trailer? Chris, will you please go back to your seat say he doesn 't like star wars we can't we've got to end this relationship right now okay i 'm just, just kidding, man i 'm just kidding all right <laughs> it's a it's a <laughs> Uh it mu <laughs> That was funny. You really don't like Star Wars? <sighs> oh. I, I, my heart is like, it's like it was like when your hair was up. I just couldn't move on with my life. Okay, we'll, we'll change that later after the presentation's over. So so when they put it in there, it spits out this thing. Now by this time, I'm, I'm an expert on the Shroud by the time I see this clip. And if you ever want to watch a documentary that's actually really good on the History Channel, because most of them are garbage, they have outdated information and a bunch of lies, and I, and I know that and can disprove every single one of them. But the real face of Jesus was actually really good. The only part I disagreed with was at the end, he looked a little too much like your white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus. Skin tone wise, and I was like, "No, that ain't right." He's a first-century Jew. I don't think he. Anyways, so watch, watch what this guy says. Keep in mind, at this point, it's a superficial image. So just keep that in mind. Watch. When you look at the shroud,
0: you have the impression that it's a picture, but it's not a picture at all. It's a database of information.
1: What? How can? A superficial image be a database of three-dimensional information. This is what happens when you put, this is the original photographs when they first put it in there. If I put a picture of you in there, it's going to look totally different. The, the, the light to dark contrasts are going to make you just look like a blob or a blur. It's not, it's not designed to do that. In order for it to spit out a topographical image, it has to have certain components to it in order for it to spit out those topographical images. Watch, it's got some more. Look at that. It's insane. So again, medieval times, and I'm going to say you got to, no, no, no artist pigments or anything, horsehair brush, first two microfibers, you got to do it in a negative image, but let's encrypt three-dimensional information in there so that when they're sending satellites to take pictures of Mars, we can really trip them out with the shroud picture. I mean, I used to be a lot less transparent about how I feel about the shroud, but I, I just... I'm just, and, and again, my faith doesn't rest or, or die on them. I mean, it, just, it, it is what it is. I, I just can't get away from, unless you can provide me a better answer, it's starting to point towards what we, what we think it is. So this is where it gets really good. This, this, is where, this is where this is only about four years old, this research is. And this is where it really took a turn. Um, what could have discolored the cloth? They think they're coming up with an answer. They think, watch.
0: The most popular theory of image, image formation on the shroud today is that of some form of energy or radiation being transmitted from the, the body enshrouded in the cloth to the cloth itself. Is it possible that during the resurrection, Christ's body turned to light, giving off the radiation which imprinted his image on the shroud?
1: I would say it's not just possible, it's scriptural. What about the Mount of transfiguration, what happened? He was lit up from the inside out and Moses and Elijah looked him up and down and said, Yep, you fit, the, you fit the match. What about when Moses spent 80 days up on the mountain? He spends 40 days up there, comes down, they're building the golden calf. He's like, you guys are stupid. Throws the tablets down and runs back up, spends 40 more days, comes down after 80 days of spending presence with the God. And his face is so lit up from the inside out that they're like, Yo, bro, cover your face. I don't think that's how they said it, but I don't speak Hebrew, so that's <laughs> close enough. But, but they had to have him put a, a veil over his face because his face was lit up from the inside out so much. It's not just possible... It's scriptural. But now we have this evidence that points to the fact that the only way this could be done is by an X-ray image. And for a long time, skeptics were saying, the forger got it completely wrong. The fingers are too long. Let's go home. And, and, and they would be right. The, the, the man of the shroud, his fingers are way too long. Except for the fact that if it's an X-ray, your fingers don't stop here. Your fingers go way back down in here. And so if it's, a, if it's an X-ray... It's actually anatomically correct. There's some other anatomically correct things about it. If you notice the man of the shroud has no thumbs, and you ask yourself, well, I guess he forgot the thumbs. They, they couldn't afford any, most, enough fake pigment to make thumbs, so they just left them off. No. And a crucified victim in Roman times, nailed to a cross, would not have had a spike go through here because it would have just ripped out because that's all flesh. They would have put it right through here at the base of the wrist, and that, there's two bones that run there, and the, the space that, that's in there is known as the space of desktop. The space of desktop. if you pinch right there, you'll feel your, the median nerve runs back into your thumb. You can feel the pressure of it. When they put that, That big old spike through there, it would split the median nerve in half, collapsing the thumb on itself, so the man in the shroud has no thumbs because he was a crucified victim. The forger would have had to have thought about that. One of the first things I noticed when I first saw this was the collection of blood here. We've got a a side wound right here, and that looks like it's on his left side, it would have actually been on his right side, but you got to remember when the cloth was folded over, the blood stains that you pull it back and it creates like a mirror image. But I noticed that the spear wound is here, and I had never noticed this in pictures until I saw the shroud for the first time, and I noticed all of the blood collected along the the small of the back. And of course, if you were laying on a flat table, the path of least resistance is in the small of the back. The forger would have had to have thought about that. If the forger thought about it enough, he would have said, there's no wounds in the knee pits whatsoever. There's wounds all over the body. I I can show to you later but there's wounds all over the body there's no wounds in the knee pits what did he do? Well, if it was a Roman crucified victim, then he would have been down on a whipping post, and you can hit the back of here, you can hit the back of the cast, but you can't get into the knee pits. So, if this is a forgery, they would have had to have thought about all of those different elements to put it into there so they could really trick us. And so, here's, here's where it got really good, is on the left is the shroud, and on the right is a skull, and there was Gary Habermas, one of the leading presenters in the world on the shroud, and he was given a presentation on the front row as a dentist, and he said, I know what that is. And that's what started Mark Antonacci on this research, and unfortunately the Italians beat him out to it. That was kind of a sad thing. But research is still there for us. So that's a good thing, but sad for Mark. Anyways, he's sitting there and Gary's like, what is it? And he says, well, I know what that is. That's a pan array. And I've actually had this done where they have to put a ball of radiation in your mouth and, and push outwards because you can do it hand or an arm or something where you shoot through and you take the picture down below. But because of the convex shape of a mouth, you have to put it in and it takes a series of pictures. It's called a pan array. And he goes, that's a, that's a clear pan array. And if the lighting was a little bit different, you can actually see the teeth coming around here and they go right around there. So that's what they start to do. But here's here's where it gets very interesting because that's where the research is heading is it must have been some sort of an x-ray, but watch how they say it was formed.
0: The Telegraph reports the scientists say the technology that would have been needed to create the marks on the shroud simply was not available in medieval times. They concluded that the exact shade, texture, and depth of the imprints on the cloth could only be produced with the aid of ultraviolet lasers, technology that was clearly not available in medieval times. In case there was any doubt about the preternatural degree of energy needed to make such distinct marks, the report spells it out. This degree of power cannot be reproduced by any normal UV source built to date.
1: We still can't do it. We can send a rover to Mars. We can clone you if you like yourself that much. We've got all this technology to do all this stuff. We don't have the technology to build a machine capable of producing the preternatural ultraviolet radiation lasers that would take to do this to this day. So is it a medieval forgery? Again, until... <laughs> Who said <that? laughs> that you? That's that's how I feel like I'm just you know I don't I don't I don't think it is I mean I, I just I don't see how anybody in the medieval times could have pulled off the anomalies that are attached to it that have been scientifically peer reviewed and not shut down I don't I don't know how that that could happen so this is where it gets really interesting though. It, does it belong to Jesus? If you ask my, my friend over here who's debating me on the authenticity, he will absolutely say that the shroud is that of a first century burial cloth of a Jewish man. He, there's no doubt about that for a lot of various reasons that I don't have time to get into. But where it connects it to Jesus is where it's interesting. And I remember if, how many of y'all have heard no Gary Habermas. Oh, that's very sad to me. Gary is, um, Gary is a good friend of mine. He is a, I call him the grand poobah on apologetics because he is just, he is, in, the, in, in today's world, there is nobody better at defending the resurrection than Gary Havermass. He's in the middle of writing his magnum opus, and it's going to be about 7,000 pages of his research over the past 45 years of defending the resurrection. So he is, but when it comes to the Shroud, he's one of the most sought after speakers. And so I remember the first time I had him on the phone, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we got Gary Havermas. I was like, I was, you know, I don't really get starstruck, but I was just, he he had been a mentor through his writings to me for so long. I was like, oh my gosh. But when we got to this part, we were talking, we get to this part, he's like, oh, that's easy. And I'm thinking, okay, I know you're Gary Habermas, I got that, I respect that, but you're going to have to bring your game for that one. He was like, no, that's easy. Because Gary's also a historian, he's got his PhD in in historical science. And anyway, so, um, he's got like three PhDs, but that's, I don't understand that, that's a lot of time, Joe. Like, I don't understand how people pull that off. We're talking, he says, that's easy. I said, okay, explain. He says, if you're going to teach a Sunday school class about Roman crucifixion methods, do not use the accounts found in the Gospels as an example. I said, what do you mean? He said... Romans wrote about their crucifixion methods. They were so proud of it. They would invent new ways. The Romans took the, 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 the 39, you know, the 40 lashes minus 1 the 39 lashes from the Jews' penalty. Because a lot of times, like Jesus, the Jew was sent to the Roman court and to be judged. And so they took what the, what the Jews had was just a three-quartered leather strand, and it hurt. And you hit it 13 times. 13 times three is 39. So you hit it 13 times, a leather-quartered strand. That's going to leave a, a mark. The Romans were like, wait, how can we improve this? And so they took, and they would stick their finger down in sand. They would melt lead. And while the lead was being dripped in there, they would put shards of glass. They would put shards of metal. And they would put shards of crushed goat skull because crushed goat skull is the hardest sharpest bone that's known to man and so they would have those three things so now when they came down with the three-quartered strand they were not just hitting and, and puncturing and breaking the veins underneath but it would actually sit and grab and tear the flesh out they were experts at crucifixion they loved it the scene in the passion of the christ where they're laughing very accurate matter of fact It is my belief that if Mel Gibson actually put on the film what Jesus went through, they would not play it. You wouldn't watch it. I might not watch it. It was most crucified victims never made it to the crucifixion. They were beaten to a pulp tied to a whipping post. And so that's what we're dealing with here. But Gary said this. He goes, out of thousands of writings of Roman crucifixions, there's not a single case, not one, not one that includes the following things. The uniqueness of of Jesus, the crown of thorns, not a single writing, not a single writing about a spear wound, and not a single writing where they didn't get their legs broken, not a one. He said, that's why if you're going to teach a Sunday school class about Roman crucifixion, don't use what Jesus went through because it's just not accurate. That was a very unique occurrence to him. So when we look at the man of the shroud, we see that he's got the spear wound right here. You'll see it right here and, and, and they, they know so much about that spear wound they can tell you the size of the lance that it was used and all that other stuff so he's got the spear wound he's also got non-broken legs when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead they did not break his legs and the reason why we know the legs aren't broken is because it's an x-ray form you can actually see on a close up on the face I should probably add that to this you can see where his nose is broken in half right here but that does not violate scripture where it says not a bone will be broken because that's cartilage right there you can see that his eye is his, his left eye is nearly totally closed his right shoulder has a wound that was after the beating because of the way that the blood is smeared. There's all this stuff that forensics can tell you about the shroud. We know that his legs weren't broken. And finally, he's got a crown of thorns. And if you'll look... The, the blood, if you take and do the, the, the uh, reverse thing, it, it really turns out well. But you can see the blood all along the front and back. And I don't think that it was this dainty little crown that, you know, the Roman soldier was was told to go out and make and made it all pretty like we always see it in the pictures. We, we, we prettify what happened to Jesus, and we, should, we ought not be doing that because it reduces what, what he went through. So I think what it was was that he drew the short straw. He was told to go out and make a crown. He went out and found this gnarly thorn thing that has two... Uh, two thorns for every, every one that's supposed to be there. And he just made kind of a bush that they smushed on. If you remember Passion of the Christ again, it was a bush that they smashed on top. So the man of the shroud has all three of the single unique instances that are only recorded once in Roman crucifixion methods that happen to be recorded in the gospel that happened to Jesus. So is it Jesus? Jesus? Again, I leave that to you, but it's a, it's a connecting point. So John goes in, and, and, and he immediately believed. And this is a weird scripture to me. And, and, I'm gonna, and this, is, this is not doctrine. This is not, I'm not dying on this hill. I'm just going to tell you what I think it might mean. Because it said in John chapter 20, verse 8, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Okay? Verse 9. <clears throat> they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. This is just... My take on this, again, not going to die on this hill. I'm not going to you know, write this in a book and tell you it's dogma. <clears throat> I just think we know that the image is getting lighter. It's, it's fading through, through time, which is what things like that do. It's, it's my belief that when John ran in that tomb and found that shroud, it was still folded up. And, and, and the reason why we, 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 we believe that he passed through the shroud and not taken it off is because there's no flesh around any of the wounds. And if, if there was a wound that you stick cloth to when you pull it off and it's dry, it's going to tear the sides of the flesh off with it. And there's no remnants of any flesh on that whatsoever. It's only blood that's on there. So he comes through this cloth. And John comes in. And he's looking for the body. He's like what is this? And he looks and something stirs in his spirit. He's like, He's not here. You know, he, he came out. But he didn't understand yet from scriptures that what Jesus was saying until he met the risen Jesus. But I, it's, it's, my, it's my theory that he saw that. He grabbed it, picked it up. If we have time to tell you, I'll tell you about the strips. Because everybody always asks, what about the strips? What about the face cloth? I'll tell you about all three of those. <clears throat> but he grabs all of them and runs out of that tomb. And I, I believe it ended up in Europe because Peter was oh, headed that way. It was the first one to head that way and took it with him. So John goes in and do this. But Barry, however, Barry believed the, the red blood. And and here's what I mean. So Barry is the expert in the world at this point on the Shroud. He's got Shroud.com. Um, he's got Sterra Inc. is the official thing that holds more information on the Shroud than you could ever imagine. He's probably the leading uh, person to, to, to go out and speak. He's been to Italy and spoke on the Shroud. <clears throat> Traveled the world, spent his entire life documenting. He's the one that convicted me to take stuff that wasn't peer-reviewed out of my presentation. Um, Barry is, is, is the man. He's, he's the Shroud man. The thing about it is is Barry is a Jew. Barry could care less if you believe this so you go and get saved. He's like, I don't have a horse in this race. I don't care. I said, well, why in the world then would you spend your entire life on this and, like, you've dedicated your whole life. Your whole life is the shroud. If it's not the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, he goes, no, it is. It, it's his. I just don't believe that he raised from the dead. And he's got some weird vapor theory that everybody's rejected, but he would have to admit that there's something supernatural that happened in order to go our route. And so anyways, I was sitting there blown away. I'm like, why? Why would a Jew who just doesn't care be the leading person who who travels and speaks about the authenticity of the shroud being that of Jesus, I said, You got to tell me that story. He goes, Well, tell you, me and Alan Adler were another Jewish man who was with them, another another NASA scientist, Jewish man. He said, When we turn the corner, and and that's what you see, when they turn the corner, the the Vatican already had it set up with this thing. They turned the corner and they immediately, both of them said simultaneously, It's a fake. And I said, Well, why? He said, Because the blood was still red. He goes, Everybody knows that blood turns oxidizes and it turns almost black so really 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 dark brown so he goes when we saw it it was like obviously this is a fraud let's just spend our five days and go home and he said so we we do that we get testing and you know blah 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 he goes "And, and for 30 years everything kept pointing back to authentic anomalies things that pointed towards the authenticity of it being real but i could never get past the blood until one day i was driving down the road and alan adler calls him and he says barry are you sitting down and he's like, I'm driving. And he says, pull over. So Barry pulls his car over. He says, what is it, man? And he says, Barry, I know why the blood is red. And Barry said he saw 30 years of his life just flash before his eyes. So, of course, at this point, I'm intently listening. I'm like, go on with your story, man. He says, Alan started volunteering um, for, to do science at some body farms. And a body farm is where you can donate your body to science. And most of the time they'll extract any usable organs if they can. And then they'll take your, your cadaver and they'll put it uh, in a bed or under a tree or in a bathtub or in the trunk of a car or laying in the middle of a field. These different various things. And they will document the decomposition process hour by hour. It may even be every 30 minutes they'll document it so that when uh, an investigator finds a body laying under a tree in the woods, he can do reverse forensics and say this body's been here for two weeks, three days, two hours, and 35 minutes. You know, they, that's how they document it back. It's actually a, a neat science to, to uncover, you know how murder, when murders were done so they could track back. So <clears throat> here's what they discovered. In victims that were severely traumatized, whether it be um, um, complete loss of limb or or, or just burst open I'll leave your imagination because there's kids in the room whatever it was that caused the body to lose more blood than it could produce because your body can only produce so much blood at a time whatever it was that caused that when the person is dying your body's an amazing thing it's trying to heal itself even unto death and so even unto death it's trying to heal itself and your body's saying I've got to have some blood or else I'm, I'm gonna die. And so it starts to extract out of the liver something known as bilirubin. Bilirubin's pumped up through your heart and out your veins, and bilirubin is what's actually excreting out of the dead carcass or the cadaver when the cadaver's laying there after death. It's not actually blood that's bleeding out. It's a serum known as bilirubin. Bilirubin's extremely high in iron. Bilirubin, because it's extremely high in iron, when the blood dries, it turns a rusty red color for 20 minutes. Two hours, two months, or 2,000 years. And so why is the blood red on there? Because what's coming out isn't exactly blood anymore. It's a serum known as bilirubin. <clears throat> oh, man. I, I had to get off the phone. Because Barry's a Jew. He has no idea what he just said to me. And, and let me just say this. Whether that's Jesus' cloth or not does not change what I'm about to tell you. doesn't change this. It hit me that day. And I've heard a lot of sermons on it is finished. <clears throat> and I I don't know that I've ever heard a bad one. They're all, they're all good. But on the day that he told me that, what I thought was this. Going back into my Old Testament studies and sacrificial systems, the blood that was in the flesh of the animal had to be completely drained out. 100%. In order, because the Bible says, blood is the life source to the flesh. And in order for the sacrifice to be acceptable to God, the sacrifice had to be completely bled out. Jesus is God-man in the flesh. That's what we refer to him as. In order for him to be the perfect and acceptable sacrifice, he had to be completely bled out in order to match the criteria of the Old Testament sacrificial system because his body being flesh, in order for it to die, had to be drained of the blood. And I'm just sitting there ruined that day. I mean... I, it, I, it probably took me three days to get over this because I had never I watched Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ I've done studies on Roman crucifixion I knew how gruesome it was but I never thought about the fact that he had to go to that cross and be drained of his, every drop of blood in order to meet the payment that he made for me he didn't go 80% of the way he didn't go 85 or 90% of the way he didn't go 95% of the way he didn't go 99% of the way when he said, it is finished, it is, it is my new belief that, that while he may have meant several things at once, I think the main thing he said was, Father, my body can't do this anymore. I have no more blood to pump through this flesh that you've given me. My, my, my goal is finished. And he took his last breath. And that wrecked me. It still wrecks me. Just the thought that he didn't he 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 didn't deserve to be there. And I am not a perfect Christian. I still make mistakes. But boy, those thirty years I lived without him, I really made a lot of mistakes that that sent him to that cross. I really made a lot of mistakes that sent him to that cross. And I know that I'm going to continue to disappoint him and sin against him. Anything that's not in his will is a sin. I'm going to continue to sin against him even though I'm fighting as hard as I can to walk a holy and blameless life. I'm still going to do things that are sending him to that cross and what he went through on that cross was more than my mind and my heart can even handle. And so I want, to, I want to encourage you with this. People ask me How, why, what keeps you so running after the Lord and trying to start. I mean, I co-pastor a church, and I co-founded a youth camp, and I travel and, and speak and teach wherever I'm given the opportunity to. I, I'm, I'm still working a part-time job just to keep some sort of money coming in. I've got a wife, and my, my wife and son have been restored fully back to me just for the record. I always forget to tell that part of the story that, man, we're, we're married now. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Not only not only have we been restored, but we're like best friends and ministry partners. She runs the lyrics for our church when we're doing worship. My son plays the drums, and he married the the girl who sings worship. And she, Scott, that girl can sing. She she is she is Lauren Daigle all over again, and she'll answer the question right if ever asked. Um, but she can sing. But, so I get, to, I get to play my guitar and lead worship because God gave me my guitar back. But instead of an electric lead guitar, he gave me an acoustic guitar for worship. I don't know what the deal was with that, but I was like, okay, I'll take whatever you're willing to give me. So I get to play guitar every, every Sunday next to my daughter-in-law who sings with my son playing drums over here and my wife. It's a family affair that we run worship. I just, I'm, just, I'm a blessed individual. I really am. Lord's turned my life around. But here's the thing. I'll never ever 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 mark my words i'll never be able to repay him for what he did for me i'll I'll never be I, i i i get that i understand that but look at me you watch me try you watch me try with the with the remainder of the years i've got left and whatever breath i've got left in my lungs you watch me try i'll never be able to do it but you watch me try because he deserves that. He deserves that from me. He deserves that from every one of us who has been blood-bought sitting in this room. He deserves every portion of your life to be trying to say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm coming after. I'm going to give you back. I'm going to try to give you back what you gave to me. I'm going to try to love you as hard as you loved me, that you died for me when I was yet still a sinner. I'm going to try. And so I commit to you, when you go to bed tonight, ask the Lord, Lord, did I, did I absolutely sell myself to you today? Is what I did for for you today or was it for me? Or was it for my job? Or was it for my spouse or my children? Because that's not the point. You can serve serve your wife, you can serve your husband in excellence because you're serving him, you'll do it through him better than you could ever do on your own. You can be a better parent when you're spent serving your time trying to pay back for what he did. You'll be a better parent, you'll be a better employee, you'll be a better business owner. Everything that is about you will change the moment that you're like, you know what, I'm not going to warm up you anymore. I'm not just going to put my tithe in the basket and expect that I've bought God's mercy and grace for this week. How much are you trying to impact his kingdom? Amen? Father, thank you is never going to be enough, but sometimes, Lord, you don't give us any other words in our dictionary to say thank you. And Father, I just asked it in the same way that you've convicted me to to, and, and compelled me to live a life trying to pay you back, that, Lord, you would do the same for every person sitting here. Because, Lord, through, through the process of me trying to pay you back, man, am I blessed. I mean, Father, you've blessed me with every spiritual blessing. You, you, your word is not a lie. I see it every day I wake up. I know it to be true. Father, I pray that everybody would realize that truth, that the more they lay themselves down in submission to you, the more that you're going to actually build them up into who you've called them to be. And that's an amazing, amazing thing, Father. Father, we thank you right now. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, We'll open it up for questions. If anybody has any questions or anything. I usually do such a good job at presenting that nobody has any questions. But I'm just, kidding. I'm just messing with you. Hey, you want, you, you want to see something crazy? If you think I'm lying, that was me. I was about 110 pounds. I had withered away to almost nothing. And look at, look at the death in my eyes. Like, you know what's weird? I conceptually realize that's me. But I don't know who that is. I have no clue. So, amen. yes so when he came off the cross they would have just like we would today out of dignity and respect they would put a cloth over their face they don't worry about the rest of the body they put a cloth over the face when they took him down off the cross, put a cross over his face, they get to the tomb, they lay him inside of that shroud, they took the cloth off, set it over here, and then put the put the cloth back down over top of him. Um, what's interesting is, and I'm going to go ahead and address this because I just think it's cool, if you go up, to, you guys can walk right up to this, take pictures, do whatever you want to do, but if you look, going all the way down here, you can see the thread marks where that, that strip has been sewn onto there, and there's two theories about that, and then I'll come back to the face cloth, and i kind of tackle it all at once. Um, the first- First area is that the nuns were OCD, and the image wasn't centered, so they cut some off of here and sewed it to there to center them up. I'm just telling you <laughs> I'm just, telling you, I'm just telling you what the theories are. The second theory is this. Um, what they, Because remember, he was never fully prepared. That's why the women were going back to the tomb. Was to wrap him like Lazarus was. They never got a chance to do that. Because it was like, hurry up, get him in that tomb. We've got to get out of here. And so they would have at least had to have taken. And, and they would tie the wrists together. Which is why the wrists are together like that. They would tie the wrists together. And then they would tie it around the waist. To keep the arms from going out in rigor mortis. And then they would tie the knees together so that the, that's why the knees are kind of bent because Ridicomorgas is trying to set in but because the knees are tied together they can't go out and then they would tie the jaw together to keep the jaw from opening up so they would actually have three strips of linen in the Bible it talks about the strips they have three strips of linen that were around there <clears throat> and again I think when John saw that he grabbed the cloth he grabbed the strips that were there. And then at some point, they sewed the strips back onto the cloth just to keep it all together is, is, I think, the most predominant theory. But getting back to the face cloth, when they took it and set it over here, it's called the Sudarium of Ovieda. And the Sudarium of Ovieda, when you take the Sudarium and you overlay it on top of the shroud, the blood marks on the face are identical. They're a perfect match. But there's no image on the Sudarium of Ovieda because it wasn't on his body at the time of the resurrection. Because, see, what I think... If, if I may theorize what I believe this to be, <clears throat> is a snapshot of the first second of the resurrection. And when he illuminated, as a bam, get up, and he, boom, light shuck into him, and, and, it, and it made this x-ray image, it, it stained the cloth with that image on there, but the sudarium wasn't on there. So the blood matches, but the um, image is not on there. That, that's another artifact? That's doing. Yeah, sudarium of Oviedo. Yeah. This is absolutely my theory. We're living in a unique time that Christianity is under the second largest attack it's ever been. The first attack was the first few hundred years when, <clears throat> if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's unbelievable what the early church went through. Um, this generation, while it's going through a lot of bloodshed, I don't know if y'all keep up with what's going on over overseas, but there's a lot of Christians being put to death still... But there's a persecution here in America that is against the mind of people. It's tainting the morals and the ethics, and it's attacking the mind of people. And at a time in which <clears throat> this generation from the 60s on has been under attack, I think it's ironic that in the 70s we begin to unpack scientific anomalies that only this generation can unpack. We couldn't see the negative or the three-dimensional qualities or x-ray images a hundred years ago. A hundred years ago, Christianity wasn't under attack. It was up until the 60s. If you didn't go to church, you were the oddball out. And then all of a sudden, you know, I think a lot of credit to World War II changed a lot of stuff. But in the 60s, it started to get attacked, prayer in school and courtrooms and everything else. And so I think in God's sovereign humor when people are trying to tear apart Christianity and the resurrection, he's saying, what do you do with this? What, what, do you, what are you going to do with this one then? Because while everything's being attacked at the logical scientific level, he's like, yeah, but what are you going to do with this? That's, otherwise, I have no good answer. That's just my own personal. you Yeah. Uh, can I tell you my my most proud moment of being a dad? So, well, I, my son was about eight when I got saved, and um, I guess he was probably about fifteen when I finally was like, "Son, you don't you have any questions at all, or or anything? Like, you you got you, you can't live off me and your mom's faith. You know, like at some point you've got to make your faith your own. You know." and he whew. And by this time brother I'm deep into apologetics and I'm thinking he's got to have some you know, crazy question and he just looks at me and he goes <laughs> he said I remember who you were before and I've seen who you've become that's all the evidence I need and I was like oh it tore me. It was, it was a bittersweet thing because he can see the change, but then it made me realize how much I put him and my wife through when I didn't know Christ. And it just, it was a, it was a shattering experience, but it goes hand in hand with what you're saying. that Yeah, no, if, if, you could, if you meet the Lord and he doesn't change you, you didn't meet the Lord. That's just my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you, though, brother. I appreciate that very much. If you want to ask anything about anything else, too, it doesn't have to be about the Shroud. Like, I, I'm ADD apologetics. Like, you can ask anything you want. Yeah, go for it, man. New Milford? Really? My cousin still lives in Litchfield. I was just there a few years ago. Litchfield's, it's, Litchfield's awesome, man. That's, that's the, Torrington and all that stuff. That's, yeah, I love that place. I crashed my first Camaro in Torrington, taking my girlfriend to... thing. Remember that turn that came and just did a ninety? I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was coming, man. And I was like in my Camaro, just like, and all of a sudden, it was like the road turned, and I didn't turn. I ran right into this person. What's that? I did two up in Vermont. I hit black ice and went, and bam! That's, that black ice is killer, man. Yes. So, so it was weird. So, I, as, as Joe was saying, I have an 1,800 square foot biblical museum that travels. Um, I don't really do it a whole lot anymore, which is sad. I need to find a place to put it. But um, I'm just getting older, and people that used to help me with it aren't there anymore. So, it's, it takes, Scott's helped me. It's, it's, a, it's an endeavor to, to set that thing up and then take it back down. But anyway, so, I was buying an Inhotep Ushapti from a guy in California, and um, he uh he sends it to me and 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 um it, which had nothing to do with the shroud at all but he attached this little like clipping you know like a newspaper clipping in there with a note that said i thought you might be interested in this and i was like oh, yeah. I, and by this time I, I was already you know studying the shroud and i was you know doing my thing but when he sent it i was like you know i haven't put shroud a turn into ebay in a long time and um and so, I put Shroud of Turn in, and there's, what are you going to buy? I mean, there's there's nothing that you can buy. And all of a sudden, one of the only things that was listed was this, and that actually comes with two... Um, full-size backlit transparencies of the negative image, which turns it into a positive, but it's like an x-ray where you put the light behind it and it shines through. It's incredible, they're just too big to travel with. I mean, they're, they're huge and they weigh a ton. But anyway, so those three pieces were listed, and so at the time, I used something called bid nip, which you put your, what you're willing to bid as the highest bid, and in the last three seconds of the auction, it drops it in, and if your bid was higher than the last person, then you'll win. If if, it wasn't, if their bid was higher, you won't. But it gives them no time to counter whatsoever. It's kind of a tricky little thing that I don't think I need to repent for. It's perfectly legal. But anyway, so, so I, I end up winning. So I drive up to Byron, Ohio to get this thing. And Byron, Ohio has nothing but corn for 400 miles. But anyways, we're in the middle of a cornfield. And I'm waiting for those little kids to start coming out, you know. Um, Laughter. And so, so we get up there, and I turn the corner, and the guy goes, Yeah, I don't know how you got this. I said, What do you mean? He goes, Well, the only other person that bid against it is his eBay name is called Rick Shroud, and he wins anything Shroud related. He must have. An, you know, money out the ears and just wins everything. But because I used BidNip, and so I made the fatal mistake of telling him, Oh, I use BidNip. And then he was like, Because I only, I'll be honest with you, I only paid 800 bucks for the entire setup. So when I met Barry and I told him what I had, he said, Well, how much you pay for? I said, $800. And I thought Barry's gonna have a heart attack, man. He was like, Are you kidding me? Because I was able to trace. So that's the STIRP teams. It ends up with a ministry that's a Shroud of Turn Research ministry. They set it up in the 1980s in Atlanta in the Omni. It goes from the Omni up to um, uh, Cleveland. Is that what's up in the top right corner? Yeah, it goes over to Cleveland. That, that one, he's from Ohio too. So it goes up to the top right corner of Ohio. That ministry finally goes down for whatever reason. This guy who calls himself a Shroudy, he's he's Catholic and Catholic people like bow to this don't do that that's just not right but anyways he buys it and he puts it on display for like 15 years in his um, counseling office that he and another guy were in And so when he was closing his counseling office he was like I don't know what to do with this I don't have room for it so he thought he was going to get a whole bunch of money on eBay and I bid nipped it but then I sat on it for like four years and I was like what am I doing? Why did I buy this? And, and then that's how I met Gary Habermas, though and one thing led to another. And so, yeah, it was, it was definitely a God thing, absolutely. <clears throat> There's that cough in the microphone where you can't. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Any other questions? Yeah. Have you done
0: your presentation outside
1: the United States? I have not. No, I was asked to go to Africa one time, but I'll be honest with you, my mission field is right here. This, this, this place that we live in here in America is turning into some of the most ungodly things that I've ever seen. And, and it's because of the attack on the, on the mind that God's not real. Jesus was a figment of your imagination. The Bible's old, outdated, and unreliable anyways, and it's irrelevant. And so I'm here to attack all that. I'm, I go out of the country on a cruise. Does that count? <laughs> That has short hair, long hair has nothing he didn 't take a Nazarene creed I mean that 's the people he drank wine nazarites can 't drink wine you know and, and so I, I he wasn't he never took a Nazarene creed, so there was no reason for him to fall under that most all first century jews to to this day have long hair and long beards, and they don 't cut this bang part. funny story side note I go to israel Atlanta stands with Israel rally and they 're all trying to put like Teflon around me and all this stuff and i 'm like. I'm not Jewish. And they're like, what? Like, so the next person's like trying to give me some Jewish stuff. I'm like, but I, I don't want to insult your Jewishness. I'm, I'm not Jewish. And they're like, what? And I said, well, why, is it, why the beard? And I said, have you ever heard of Duck Dynasty? And I, that was, that was, that's the truth. I, I started growing out because of Duck Dynasty, but they couldn't understand that. It just didn't make sense to them. So that, that's, I, I don't think he took the Nazarene Creed. He wouldn't have had to if he was sinless. So, thank you so much for listening this
0: week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at Bacon'sCastle.com.
1: Also, check out our website at Bacon'sCastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed.